Hey guys, Ben Belak and Zach Goldsmith here. It's one thing to submit an offer. It is another to get an offer accepted. And yet it's another to close that deal. And that, my friend, is what all the top agents have in common. We close deals. Get our clients what they want, period, end of story. That was, sorry, I'm... I'm super inspired by Stephen A. Smith lately. He just gets his point across. Lakers by seven. This week, we are handing over our blueprint. We're going to take you through our top six negotiation hacks that we not only use on our clients Mm. and families, but correct me if I'm wrong, at times on each other. Yeah, but I'm going to warn you not to use it on your family because these tactics don't work, at least with my kids and wife. I find what does work, though, is removing the iPad. So Mm. my first tactic is I was going to share with your clients, remove your clients' iPads. Start there. Okay, so the the worst time (laughs) you want to figure out what you're going to say is when you're saying it. Case in point. Oh, don't be mad at me just because I say things come to me like, coming to me like magic. I'm sorry. They come to you like what? Like magic. I'm like s- it just comes to me. Hoka pocus, man. You got to work too hard, man. <laughs> this shit comes to me, man. Whoa. Okay. So like okay. magic. Ay, 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 bro. Sorry. Sometimes this people have to prepare episode. more. This is serious and we're getting to it. I gave my first tactic. Okay. It was the iPad usage. Guys, this is the manipulation episode of To Live and Buy in Los Angeles. Let's get started. None of the following would matter without some semblance of research and intel. You've got to always be asking questions. Curiosity leads to certainty. Curiosity killed the cat. So wait, what are you saying? Don't don't be curious? No, I don't agree with that. I don't know where it came from. (laughs) I don't think it matters here. I agree with you because one thing that I talked to you about is um, always uh, not not just – understanding what we want, our objectives, our goals, and our limits, which is also important, but equally as important, if not more, is finding out what the other side's objectives are, Mm -hmm. what their goals are, what they want. It's so basic, but I start with that philosophy. Mm -hmm. If I can dig more into who those people are, I'll find out what they want and I'll get what I want, what we want, Dale Carnegie. So you're curiously looking for those answers. Yes. Yes. Like, uh, okay. So what are the, what are some of the tactics you use when trying to uncover some of those needs and limitations? You, you, you hire a private investigator, Uh, depending on how big the deal is. (laughs) Social media, Uh social media, just like you can find out so much. Then you find out who their friends are. Then you find out, seemed like a stalker, but honestly, it's not to get any deeper than just getting as much info as we can. So social media, who their friends are, where they work, who we know, who we have in common, six degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. If I can come at them with more angles, I can get to them. I can find their emotional triggers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that make, that's like, that's like leverage 101. Sage advice from the outset. So let's rip through our top six negotiation hacks here to out negotiate your opponent. By the way, sometimes your opponent, <laughs> your opponent could be your client. 
So we have to negotiate with our clients first before we negotiate with other brokers. You know, if they watch the bully episode, they'll see that the opponent can also mm. sometimes be within. One of our classics, the bully episode. It's a, it's a cult classic now, everyone I'm still on fighting it. Number one, what is your number one tactic yes. in out-negotiating your opponent? My number one lesson ever learned was to slow down the communication. Yes. Are you slowing down? The guy's slowed down. I like this. <laughs> I wish you'd slow it down more often. Okay. What I mean by that specifically is, is if I'm transmitting an offer that I think the other side's not going to like, or a counter that has terms that I don't think they're going to like, or to my own client, I know that an emotional response is coming. So I will be intentionally unavailable for a reasonable amount of time. If it's during the workday, I may wait an hour or two before being available. I could simply just say, Hey, I'm on showings. Wanted to get this to you. We'll connect this afternoon. Or sometimes if I send something like around dinner time or so, I'll be like, think about it. I'll talk to you in the morning. So, okay. So you don't totally leave them in silence. You kind of give an indication that I am here, but unavailable right now. Yes. Sit in your own stew and boil, and I'll come back to you when you're cooked. That's exactly right. So I don't disappear. I want to make sure that people get that point, but I refuse to reason with the unreasonable. I get your point. So it's, it's when they're overly emotional about things, yeah. and they may be like the other broker as a probably a good example, they won't stop calling about something. It's actually a power of leverage to let them continue to attack, to let them throw punches that we're blocking and wait till they're tired. And then we strike. And look, I will say that, um, sometimes as a human being, I will have an emotional reaction and I follow the same rule. Slow down. I will not respond emotionally. So I will force myself to, Hold. Can I say the only time I object to that is if a client is calling incessantly and it's, you know, nine at night, mm -hmm. I will a thousand percent of the time take mm -hmm. the call. Yeah. Especially when it's, when I know emotions are running high yeah. and I'll jump on, I'll listen mm -hmm. and I will devise a plan to respond within 30 seconds and cut it off and be done. So at least they have a little guidance going in. Mm -hmm. They're not fuming, wondering what the hell happened to their child. They now know he's safe. It's going to be fine. We have him. We'll talk to you in the morning. No, I get it. What's number two? Uh, well, I would say number two ties in with number one, and I love the name of it, weaponizing silence. Whoa, that sounds scary. Well, it, it kind of falls in line with number one, and it's, it, it's not letting your emotions steer the ship, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, you're heading straight for an iceberg. Mm -hmm. It is letting them simmer, calm down, and let's take it to the next level after we have thought about things. That sounds like slow down the communication. It Why does. don't you tell the Paul Allen story so we can talk a little bit more about what you really mean? Well... The power of silence to me was never so understood as the Paul Allen deal we did, the biggest deal of my life at the time. And the biggest lesson I learned from that is we had a $100 million piece of land mm -hmm. and we fell out of escrow three times with some of the biggest names in the world. We get the fourth buyer here. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, they always say fourth is a charm. Mm -hmm. 
four time people <laughs> you're gonna say the fourth time he is buying this property we are a month in and we are about to close we get a call that he is on the fence what happened so he says he wants to come to the property one more time okay we drive up there four o'clock on a friday you're planning him. everything you're gonna say to selling clothes a thousand percent a and thousand percent i built the story and it was gonna be this is it i am going to right when he gets there he's gonna get out of the car and i'm gonna be like so and instead and he gets out of the car he says hi and i just shut the fuck up Oh, I wish you would now. I just laid silent. He said, "You laid walk. silent. You laid down." <laughs> I, I laid Are you paying attention to your own story? I laid in my state, okay. silent. I state of California walked with him off into the vista, a hundred, two hundred yards, and literally none of us said a word. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done in real estate I in know. A negotiation uh -huh. with the biggest deal of my life on the line. Okay, I. Shut the fuck up because something told me to. And I and I'm learning to use the power of silence more and more. Not Are right you? now. I will after this. Okay. Wait, go, we okay. get back to the car. Uh-huh. He gets in, he leaves. I'm freaking out. I have no idea. I just knew not to say anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there's no way. How did I not just deliver everything I just planned? And I'm and I'm like, we lost it. Two hours later. Mm-hmm. One of his people call and say, he's just wired the money. We're done. Amazing. Congratulations. And I collapsed. I couldn't believe it. I was like, how did me not running my mouth work? And have you been using silence since? No, no, I won't do it anymore. It so, was a one-time wonder. Of course, I used the power of silence since that moment, and it works wonders. Yeah, I mean, I think that what silence does is it demonstrates a confidence and a resolve. When we tend to explain, particularly in the micro of negotiation, we tend to lose. The person explaining is not in control. So when we push across, a lot of agents will do this with us. They'll push across an unreasonable request after inspections. And then let's say we haven't responded in a few days. The second they hit me up and say, just checking in, I know that we can cut their request in half because they're telling me that they're willing to come off their posts and they're willing to move forward. So when we in my office push across something, no matter what it looks like, we sit on our hands until we get the response to not send a signal that moving forward is more important than us getting our request. Let's move sure, it's on. Sure, so it's, it's just really kind of like these number one and two are so imperative and they run hand in hand. They do. Let's Slowing down the communication, weaponizing silence. Yes. Number three. My fave. You love this move. I love, a, so number three is mirroring and labeling. Um, in any negotiation, as a, a particularly one where you want to be collaborating, which is all of them versus antagonizing, it is of paramount importance to the other side that they feel first heard and second understood. Mirroring and labeling accomplish that. So an example of mirroring would be if I say something to, or if someone says something to me in a very emphatic and strong way, I would then repeat that thing right back to them, ending it with the sound of a question. So you're saying if someone says something to you in a very strong and emphatic 
manner, for mm-hmm. example, you will repeat it back to them. Okay, Zach, don't try and trick me on the show, okay? Yes, that was a great mirror. <laughs> okay. That was a great mirror. Really good. Now, the labeling aspect is after you do the mirror, which you did really well. It was well-performed. I almost fell for that. So you feel the way I delivered that was very well-performed. Yes. I okay, let's do. get to the label because <laughs> this is exciting. Labeling yeah. then says... So what I think I hear you <laughs> saying is, and it's the between the lines, what's actually important to them. So we do a lot of prospecting in an emotional environment, particularly expired and canceled listings. You're getting a thousand calls. And oftentimes those start off with extremely frustrated and exhausted sellers. And So this is your first move. What I'll say is in... A- one of the kind of our cardinal moves or paramount like primary moves in on my team is when in doubt mirror it will buy you time if someone says something to you and you actually have no idea how to respond you just mirror just your gut move is mirror because once you mirror you're actually asking a question and the person asking the questions is in control of the conversation i've had people scream at me and then i just repeat it back and um they sound like asses. now they they're explaining it. you want to get them explaining so mirroring and labeling is an incredible tool personally and professionally and then so labeling is not as much solving as it is identifying the problem that's key is you are repeating it back, letting them hear it, giving a chance to ask more questions, and then you are identifying the issue. Not solving, you're identifying. Yeah, you're telling them that I understand you, right? The way someone, the the thing that someone says we mirror, the way they're saying it gives us clues into what's important to them. And if we can say, what I hear you saying is X, Y, Z, and they go, yes, they're yours. You love a good mirror. Mirror and labeling is the best tool anyone can have, particularly an agent who's trying to move from buyer's agent to listing agent. Particularly if you are looking for a better relationship. Oh my God. Mirroring and labeling to your partner will supercharge your relationship. We need a real therapist on this show next. Not not at the budget you talked about that one day. Another, uh, something else that just made me think that it, it is such a powerful tool that I'll mention next because I just use it recently is something called the escalation. Clause. Oh, okay. First, you know, I was going to say that first define what it is, and then we'll talk about when it's appropriate. So an escalation clause is really used mostly in a bidding war. Yeah. Okay? Multiple buyers. So let's say you have a million dollar list price and you have 11 buyers and they drive the price up to one, two. You don't know where the price is going to end up. Yeah, it's a silent auction. As the buyer's agent, it's a silent auction. So you're in as much communication with the other side as possible, but sometimes the other side in a multiple won't give you information. By the other side, he means the agent representing the seller. Yes, correct. If you're representing the buyer... That's when you use an escalation clause in a, in a bidding war. Mm-hmm. The other side may be reluctant mm-hmm. to give you information because, number one, there's a good chance they have their own buyer at that point. Yeah. Number two, they may be 
they may be using the power of silence. They may have to use the power or of silence. Or they're saying, I want to keep it fair. Well, they want to keep it fair or their manager has to take it because there's multiple offers. Whatever the reason is, mm-hmm. you don't know, you're going in blind. What an escalation clause does is it gives you an edge over the next highest offer. So let's say you cap it at, let's say it's $50,000 or $5,000, whatever it is for the sake of argument, you say, I'm going to put in an escalation clause. My offer is going to be uh, $5,000 more than the next highest offer. As long as you show it to us and you receive it before X day in time. Correct. I want to, I want to, this way it has to be an expiration forever. Right. And you put a max on it too. Like if it's a $2 million house, you're going to say, I'm going to pay 50,000 more than the next time. Those are actually the rules in our, in our market that you put a cap on it, which is what you're describing. But I don't, because I want to, I'd rather, I don't want them to counter me at the cap. So if they say, but they have to show proof of another offer at that price. So if they show the cap, no, no, they don't have to show proof. I'm just saying if they know, if I'm like, Hey, we'll do 20,000 over the best and final with a cap of a million five, they could just be like, here's a straight counter at a million five, take it or leave it. I'd rather just be 20,000 over because you're not in a leveraged position. So even though we're supposed to put a cap, um, I leave it off and assume the listing agent doesn't know that because I don't want to show our cards. Yeah, either way, it works. However you do it, it's a, it yeah, just it worked. Work. I, I think either method works. We just used it on a house um, in the Hollywood Hills, an incredible mm-hmm. mid-century that mm-hmm. came on the market at 2-3. And we knew this price was going to drive up. We didn't want to re- we didn't want to go over a certain amount. Uh, and this is where we didn't put a cap on and it worked. We knew our cap would be $3 million. Yeah. How crazy is that, that we're in a market even still now that under five or $3 million, a $2.3 million property went to 3 million. Whoa. We went back and forth a few times, best and final. We put an escalation clause not to exceed oh. $3 million. So that's your Not cap. to exceed. And we won out of 11 offers. Yeah. You we were the winning offer and we didn't have to go to 3 million. Mm-hmm. We went to 2825. Our cap was 25. The next highest offer was 82.8. Instead of coming in at 2.8, we came in with an escalation clause for $25,000 won the listing. It is a huge tool in negotiating. The You're escalation clause. a huge tool in negotiating. What I would say is, is but that it worked. The, the only <laughs> that caveat that we're going to add as we power through here is that it is a good idea to ask the listing agent, are you okay with it? Because sometimes listing agents don't like it for whatever the reason. I think it's silly not to like it. I'm like, bring it on. You know, you want to pay over everyone? Great. But for some reason, they don't like it. And then they can punish you or your client by telling the seller, hey, I told them not to. Um, and they did it anyway. And also sometimes in 10 offers, like Zach just described, maybe if three people do escalation, they'll end up countering just to those three people and say, show us your best. The time that I force feed it is when, um, I feel like the listing agents representing someone and they're really not helping us or they've passed someone to someone on their team. They're not helping us. And to box them out will, will always be the highest and it won't be 5,000. It'll be enough. That's like the buy side commission. Cause that's what sellers think about. Why don't we move to number five? Oh, number five. You love this one. I do. And I'll make it quick, which is don't overdo it when pre-managing expectations. Um, You don't want to hammer your client on price or a request for a pair without the reply in your hand. Reason being, reason being, one, if you really, really push them, they're going to think that you're not their advocate in the 
negotiation room. And in fact, you're more, it's more important to you to advocate for the relationship that you have with the listing agent. Um, the other reason why you don't want to do that is because if you're, if they veto you and say, I don't care what you say, submit it anyway. I don't care if you think it's unreasonable. And the other side accepts, not only will will your credibility in perpetuity be destroyed in their eyes, it, they're not going to refer you to anyone because it will show that you do not have the pulse on the market more than the consumer and there's no sense in using you. So I yeah, feel like you've had a bad experience there. I, I did. I, I did early on because my mentor, when I first started, he was always like, well, this is the way it works and this is my way. And that's how I was shown. And I was like, this is the way instead of me really um, accommodating uh, uh, to the client style. And on paper, it was a great deal. I got them everything they wanted. But ultimately, at the end, they weren't really happy. And that's because I was pushing them a little too hard. So what I would say is don't pre-manage. Way to educate once you have the reply from the other side in your hand. The last tactic I would say that is really most effective goes, ties in with everything else, is what you were saying about the escalation clause Mm. is making sure you're communicating with the other side and playing fair, it's almost like you're kissing their ass. Kiss the ring. Oh, yeah, you got to kiss, kiss the ring. Kiss the ring. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I always want the other agent to feel great. When I first got into the business, I was all my clients wanted to live in Silver Lake and Franklin Hills and Los Feliz, and it was insane multiple offers. And the Los Feliz Sotheby's office controlled all of the inventory, literally. What all year was this? Um, like around 2013 or so, like I was two years into the business and like everyone wanted to live there and that office had everything and literally the market had really recovered at that point from the hit. Between oh my God. And, and the, and the wow, homes in those days, in those days were like a million to a million three. Oh yeah. yeah so yeah. like every, buy everything. for these amazing mid-century homes with great views and literally I, if my client likes something on a Sunday, I was there piggybacking a showing and just saying how amazing the house is. I can't wait to work with you. What can I do? What does the seller need? Because in essence, we are the buyer or we are the seller and I wanted them to pick us and it really worked. Yeah. Well, by the way, also kissing the ring and I mean like direct communication with that other agent and letting them be the good guy. Like I do this very often. I'm, I am happy to play bad cop if they play good cop and we mm. get the deal done with their clients. So I don't really, I know how I'm going to come across mm. in their client's mind anyway, as long as I get the deal done. So I would rather create the correspondence personally that they can forward to their clients. I want it to come from me. I want to be the bad cop here in their mind. Yes. That, so their agent can be the hero and save the deal. Because if you don't put the, the, the other agent in the position of playing the hero, so many of them will play the hero on their own and they'll kill the deal. It's it's so true. What Zach's describing is, is if you kiss the ring to the other side, you create trust. And when there's trust, you both can become good cop and bad cop together. And when the listing agent, let's say, is communicating to their client, they don't have to be the villain. Zach can be bad cop on their behalf. And it's it's an incredible kind of two-man or two-person team um, in tandem serving everyone's common goal. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. Those are a handful of tactics that we have deployed lately. We've been talking about, we've been putting into effect, and they've been crushing for us. Right? Good ones. So guys, thank you for tuning into an information-packed and hack-packed episode of To Live and Buy in Los Angeles. Between the two of us, we've been in the business over 20 
five years, something like that. So um, I, I will say transparently, four or five of those I'm using every single day, every single day. Um, really hope that you um, just really think about them and, and put them into your daily practice. Yeah, let us know if you use them and uh, if you get the deal done or you get fired. We'd love to know either way. <laughs> I'm at Ben Bellack. This is... Zach Goldsmith, 24. We are to live and buy in LA and we will see you next time. Super bien.